The biggest crisis facing each and every one of us is the looming environmental catastrophe. Now, for some, it seems far away and ethereal as a concept, despite the evidence being overwhelming that the crisis is already here. For other people, it must be a great big hoax perpetrated by the big money folks who derive enormous profits from pushing solar panels and paper straws. And for others, it's a looming crisis that threatens everything they hold dear to the point where action seems futile and the future seems too bleak to contemplate. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Environmental psychology is about an awful lot more than just the environment. You know, climate change and reducing our consumption of coal and gas and oil and plastic. It's also about the way we interact with our environments. The way we feel when we enter a room, the way a restaurant might be laid out to encourage us to buy dessert, or an office might be lit to make us feel happier at work. On today's episode of Mindful, we're going to discuss all of those facets of environmental psychology with the expert I trust most to break it all down. I'm Dr. Lindsay McCunn. I'm a professor of psychology at the Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, British Columbia, Canada. And my training is in environmental psychology, and I just finished within the year um, a second graduate degree in applied neuroscience. So I'm kind of splitting my time between environmental psych and applied neuro. Yeah, and I'm the chair of the environmental psych section of the CPA. And I believe you're now a very prestigious journal editor as well, right? <laughs> yeah, very honored to have a co-editorship, editor-in-chiefship, I suppose, with Dr. Wes Schultz in California of the Journal of Environmental Psychology, which is arguably the premier journal in the field. Such a, a lovely job to do, to see all the new research that comes in all the time from all the different aspects of environmental psych, which, as you know, is a very interdisciplinary discipline and, uh, and merges with so many other fields and, and scholars. So getting to read all of the new lit is, is it's a lot of work, but it's beautiful work. You know what, actually, I, I want to start this off by talking about environmental psych. We're going to talk about the environment a little later on and, and uh, a new publication and that sort of thing. But what I really like to do first is just delve a little bit into environmental psychology for those who don't know what it is, right? Most of us, I think we hear the words environmental psychology and we assume that it has to do with climate change and the environment around us and you know, saving the planet from all of the terrible things that we humans do to it. But it's a lot more than that. So I'm hoping you can just uh, explain what it is that you do on a regular basis. Sure. Yeah. Well, you, you've got it mostly right. So environmental psych is a, well, it's a relatively young subfield of psychology. So it's not maybe as classical or traditional as, you know, social or neuro or cognitive or developmental psych. But in the last six decades or so, really this this idea of transactions between people and place has become more formal. So we study, you know, the, the field started off by, by studying how people interact with, you know, work settings, built environments, architecture, moved into, you know, hospital design, prison design, working with city planners and, and architecture uh, experts and so on, trying to figure out what some of the tenets of humane design are. Because, of course, we spend so much time indoors, even more so now than when the field started. And it's only rational and completely justified to expect that the environment affects us and our mood and our thought processes and our behaviors um, just as much as uh, social interactions do. 
So traditionally, people would feel like psychology is a social field, and it is, but it's also important to pull apart that environmental piece and study that as a variable in relation to how people are, are as individuals and as groups. And so mostly, and there are a handful of us that that still study you know, the built environment and traditionally understand things like stimulation theory, so how lighting and acoustics and thermal comfort and you know, other things affect us in buildings of all sorts, and then make recommendations to architects and planners and designers and engineers about what to do about buildings to make it more satisfactory to people to be inside them. And um, is that what you mean by the phrase humane design? Like you've designed it in such a way that the lighting and the way that things are laid out inside that building makes people feel better when they're in that space? Exactly. Yeah. To make sure that health and well-being are considered in the design so that we're not just designing for economy or or something else uh, need for some, for some other purpose, especially, uh, you, you know, using public dollars for public infrastructure, it's important to care for the user. And this idea of social design and the goals of social design is, are very much linked to that. Wayfinding as well, and, and, you know, just other things that lower stress, especially in, in buildings that are naturally very stressful, like, like airports and hospitals and so on, where you are naturally going to have a higher level of anxiety. We want to sort of take the low hanging fruit of what can we do, you know, about the design of those areas to make to make people feel better? And then recently, of course, with the problem of climate change, it's really important to augment the field of environmental psych to include topics about conservation and pro-environmental behavior, pro-environmental attitudes, eco-consciousness, and sort of see how they link up so that we can give good evidence-based advice to policymakers and governments to make sure that we can combat this problem of climate change together. And I imagine that's where the two sort of branches of environmental psychology intersect, right? And the notion that, okay, I'm going to build a brand new building and it's going to be very eco-conscious and there's going to be a garden on the roof and we're going to run a lot of stuff based on the energy we accumulate through solar panels and we're going to have, you know, I guess less stuff going on inside that wastes a lot of energy and that sort of thing, right? And maybe the lights will turn off at night and it won't be lit up all night long when you drive by it on the highway, right? <laughs> uh, but how do we design it in that way so that the person inside also feels very good about being in there? And is that as simple as, well, this building is really environmentally conscious and it does a great job of, you know, not wasting a lot of energy and it improves the environment by growing cucumbers on the roof or whatever. Like, is that enough to make somebody feel better about being in that space? Well, it depends on the values of the people in the space. It's so it's so interesting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, literature on integrated design and how it's important to ask, mostly ask the people who are going to be using the building or who are using the building about what their values are so that you can align the design with what those are so that, you know, they come to work or or home or, or whatever the building is, um, feeling encouraged and empowered to, to make environmental decisions and to, you know, sort of be their best selves in relation to the environment that they're in. And I think it, it is a really complex process, though, because it's really tough, as any architect or designer knows, it's really hard to please everyone. And we all have different adaptation levels and, you know, locus of control and sense of controllability and territoriality and personal space tolerance and all of these things that make us uh, uh, individually ourselves. And so it becomes sort of the job of a, of a broader social scientific inquiry to try to measure all of those things and understand them and give good recommendations to designers, depending on the context of what's going on inside. You know, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. I was in one of these tech uh, offices <laughs> and 
for those people in Ottawa, no, it wasn't Shopify. It was a, a different one, similar like that, right? And I thought, like, this is what you see in the movies when they want to make a sort of ridiculous space for a tech company, beanbag chairs and hammocks, and you can take a scooter from one meeting to the other and that kind of thing, right? And they're really, really trying to push getting their employees to go back into the physical office to work. And I was thinking, like, that's a really interesting situation where you've created this space ostensibly to, you know, make your employees as productive and happy as possible when they're in that space. And yet they still would prefer to work from home for the most part. And getting them to come back is a difficult thing. But now you've built it. And now you say, well, I spent all this money on it. Please come back to work so it wasn't a waste of money, right? I, I imagine that's something, a situation a lot of people are now in, given the last two years of the pandemic, where we've all become very comfortable uh, wearing jogging pants. <laughs> yeah, especially if we've made it adaptations to our home to make it so that we can work more productively. Because at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think I was talking to you about this at the very beginning of it, where part of the shock of of having to sort of move your work environment to home was sort of the lack of environmental competence you had. Like I use the example for me when I came home from, you know, the campus environment where all of my books, you know, traditionally, you know, the professor's office, like all the books are on the, on the wall and I just pulled them whenever I needed them. And then I came home, you know, to the house that I'm renting and I can't just put up all these bookshelves and I didn't have all the resources. And I, I felt that sort of, you know, such a stark difference between what I needed from my work environment to, you know, to complete my goals and to sort of behave the way I needed to and what I had at home. And then over time, it sort of accumulated all that I needed and became adapted to working from home. And I think it is interesting that, you know, offices in particular have to sort of come up with incentives to get people to come back, especially if the commute is long. We did a study, um, I won't talk about it too much because it's not published, it's not quite done, but I was working with an engineering team at UW during the pandemic. And then one of the, the team members happened to be from Indonesia and they noticed that some of the Indonesian companies and offices were asking people to come back really early on, retrospectively in the <laughs> in the COVID process. And so we did the study about a, you know environmental trust of the occupants to see whether all of the bells and whistles that the these offices were putting in place for safety, like you know extra hand sanitizing stations and extra HVAC uh, information pamphlets about how clean the air would be, and you know almost security guards at the door uh, executing compliance-based sort of guidelines about oh did you wash your hands, did you come in, and you know did you take a test, and so on. And we measured how comfortable people were, and it, I mean the results are a bit tricky because you know it was it was a tricky time to be asking people questions but yeah it seemed like people were a bit almost more scared because of these extra measures than they would have been otherwise but yeah yeah and i wonder if that's the kind of thing that you get used to you know when the pandemic first started i i do some work with a charity here in ottawa that helps homeless youth and it's not something that you can do virtually you can't do this remotely they have to come in because they have no place to Zoom from, right? I mean, <laughs> have no home, right? So they come in and they have a hot breakfast at the drop-in and attendance fell like crazy at the beginning of the pandemic because we do have that security protocol at the door and there's somebody who's checking your temperature and there's somebody who's signing you in and asking if you have any symptoms and you have to wear a mask when you're in there and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people you know, immediately said, no, that's not what I'm used to from this organization. I don't want to do any, I don't want any part of it. And, and I'm out, I'll find somewhere else to go or be. But over the last two years, we're now seeing more than we ever had before. 
Now, part of that is because there are more people experiencing homelessness, but it's also because a lot of the youth that we saw became quite familiar with that system and that protocol. And yeah, no problem. I signed in. Yep. Take my temperature. Yes. I'm wearing the mask. Right. And none of the protocols have changed. None of the procedures have changed. Still the same. But I think that people develop a comfort level with that over time. Does that make some sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. It it was interesting to sort of watch that, not not from the same example in, in the center, but even something so simple as watching people sort of have a, a sense of reactance against having to stand so far apart in line at a coffee shop at the beginning, you know, sort of like, oh, you know, I want to, I want my humanity back. Ironically, I want to stand when I, where I want to stand. And, and people were very, you know, sort of unsure of where to go unless there were stickers on the floor and so on. And I noticed that they came in quite quickly to help people behave in the program of a space. So environmental psych, and to some extent, in industrial organizational psych, we, we talk about the program of a space. So that's basically what does the space and the design need to be in order to help a social norm happen or in order to communicate to the users what should happen in that space. And so in a in obviously a coffee shop, you know, it should be obvious from where the furniture and fixtures are, what you should do in what order, right? To to get what you need done, to get your goal attained in that space. And so and also there's this idea of staffing, like how many people inside is enough to get that to program to to be successful and not feel awkward or you know weird or anything. And so with the you know social distancing at the beginning, people had not adapted. And so it was sort of nobody was sure what to do anywhere and where to stand and and how many people should be in a a space. And if it was, you know, unsafe or safe to step in or step out at at certain times. And it was just interesting watching that as an environmental psychologist, watching that happen wherever I went in my community, at least the places that were open and then watch it slowly become almost the norm to stand very far apart from someone or to even know that, you know, the dots are gone now. Like in my university, there were dots saying which way to go in the hallways and so on. People still adhere to that, I think, out of either habit or, or you know, just precaution, I guess. But it's just, it's interesting. It didn't, it took, you know, less time than I assumed for people to adapt for sure, which gives me some insight as an environmental psychologist about the general adaptation stability of people, I think we study it, um, but without a, a situation or circumstance where we actually get, get to see it naturalistically. Yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting time. It is interesting. And I like, I remember I go to the same grocery store all the time. It's the one that's near me. So I'm very familiar with its layout and the way, right? And they put the arrows on the floor. So you go up one aisle and down the next and everybody followed that you know, pattern as you go through. So I developed a very, you know, uh, (laughs) repetitive pattern. Every time I went, I did it the entire store in the exact same order that, right. I went up and down every single aisle, even if I didn't need, you know, graham cracker crumbs. (laughs) But when they took the arrows out, I found myself really irritated with anyone going the wrong way in the aisle. And, you know, like, and then it took me a while to realize the arrows had been removed because I was so used to, uh, you know, taking that same route through the store. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So in, in terms of, you know, the environment itself, the impact that we have on the environment, over the course of the pandemic, a lot of buildings did have to retrofit themselves in one way or another, better ventilation and that kind of thing, uh, in order to become safer for people you know, exposed to a respiratory virus. But did we miss a larger opportunity to sort of retrofit those buildings in a more environmental way? Have we, you know, could we have done more over the course of this two years when everything was changing in such a big way 
to move ourselves in the direction of a more environmentally conscious infrastructure? Um, I don't know. I mean, I hope I hope that if if an organization had the means to sort of do, uh, you know, a piggyback onto something that they were changing, like our university, our building did make renovations to the HVAC system. But I don't I think that was it. And I think that's all they they decided to do, probably because the expense was surprising. What's interesting, though, maybe in some buildings, if they did do, say, an upgrade upgrade in, in the HVAC if they could take the opportunity to choose HVAC systems that were more environmentally friendly, say, and really dealt with some of the particulate issues we talk about now that we have, you know, wildfires happening every year uh, because of climate change issues and sort of the public worry that for good reason that the particulate is is very damaging to our lungs and our respiratory system. If, um, if they could have maybe educated building users, and some buildings probably have done so, to say like, hey, we made this, you know, HVAC upgrade for public health reasons because of respiratory illnesses, but also because of, you know, any instances of wildfire, depending on where you are, uh, I suppose, in 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 the continent. But it draws awareness to the fact that they can either, you know, trust the building and trust these sort of green environmental movements that happen in design and raise awareness about why it's important to care about the environment and to maybe make some different choices about how we behave environmentally so that we don't need these precautions so much, but also just to show that, yeah, that renovations can be done to help the situation and to help us adapt to the differences in uh, in the climate and, and in public health issues. Yeah. Now, is there is there a good way to deliver that message? Because I must admit, whenever I hear somebody tell me this is very green, this is very good for the environment, this is excellent, I immediately have a little skepticism in the back of my head. And I think, okay, are you greenwashing or is this in fact real uh, that you've actually made an effort uh, to become more environmentally conscious? And am I helping or are you just help hurting a little less than what you were before. Right. And I see it a lot in commercials. I think right now that there are commercials about oil and how much it helps the environment. And I think, okay, that's, I think clearly uh, something to be skeptical of. Right. So is there a way, you know, for cynics like me to uh, convince me to, to send the message when you uh, have retrofitted your building that in fact uh, this is for the best do you need to put all the specs out there and yeah there's there's got to be a mix like some people really like that feedback and it is true that sort of data and evidence can get people to really believe especially if they've got that sort of lean towards skepticism or just expect data to to explain to them the extent to which something has helped and not just that it has or it hasn't but how much um and this idea of like low impact versus high impact impacts and behaviors toward the climate change issue they want to know what's if whether something is a low impact thing or a high or a high impact one and to them maybe it, it makes a difference if something's worthwhile doing so i think you know the idea of smart buildings is really neat and you can get you know smart homes and apps where it'll tell you, you know, basically real time what your, what the air quality is in, in the house, what the energy use is, what the plug load is, what, you know, what solar is coming in, if you've got that hooked up, what your water use is and so on. And I think that can sometimes be overwhelming. Like some, you know, sometimes people uh, look at it and go, oh, well, you know, do I need to be an engineer to understand this? If you can 
sort of balance it so that anybody can look at it and understand their usage and whether or not it's making a difference. The one thing is, is that you shouldn't just give usage data and expect someone to interpret it well. You should give usage data and then compare it to what's expected or what a particular goal is. There's been studies about people feeling better about their environmental behavior um, if it's compared against their neighbors. <laughs> so we're, right. we're sometimes inherently competitive and not so cooperative. We want to go, yeah, we're going to beat neighbor neighbor Jim over there, he's got water used like this, we're going to do better than neighbor Jim, things like that. But I think actually the public buildings like our university and, you know, other hospitals and, and airports even and other things where it could show real data about how the building is doing and sort of back up this idea. It's like, oh, you say you're sustainable and you say you're green. You know, the regular consumer is not going to be able to see those, you know, those lead certification checklists unless they post them, I suppose, or, um, you know, whether something qualifies for the living building challenge and so on. Like those qualifications are, are rigorous and they do have, you know, science behind what they're asking buildings to do. But to communicate that to people, I think not only can be really influential in terms of getting people to feel trusting in the building and what it's doing, but also getting them inspired and maybe relating that back to their own life. Like when I see, you know, larger public buildings doing lots of engineering things and, and saving energy, I kind of go, well, if if a larger building can do that, and if there's an organization that's invested in that kind of decision, you know, to, to make changes in their infrastructure, what can I do at my home to tweak my, you know, my water use or, um, you know, harvest the rainwater, or, you know, unplug things or getting a, getting something going with my kids to, you know, to turn off the lights and so on. Like, for some reason, understanding that larger systems are making those changes takes, I think it just personally takes the pressure off me as an individual to make all of the good decisions and instead makes me a little bit more enthusiastic about doing that uh, in my own life. Now, what about if, you know, you're in your office and somebody comes in and says, you know, the company in the office next door recycles <laughs> a lot more than you and turns their lights off at the end of the day and doesn't jack the heat up. So, uh, you know, would, would that create a similar competitiveness? And also, similar uh, on a similar topic, if my neighbor is a slob and doesn't for something at all. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. My neighbor's a slob. He doesn't recycle at all. He puts out 16 garbage bags every day, every garbage day, uh, but none of the green bin, none of the blue bin, none of that. Does that make me less likely to do any of those behaviors because I don't, I don't need to be the good one on the block? Anyone's better than Jim next door? Yeah, that's definitely one of the dragons. Uh, you know, Dr. Gifford um, put out this this wonderful paper, uh, sort of the dragons of inaction, so explaining some of the barriers to pro-environmental behavior that people have and sometimes don't even realize they have, which is why the paper is, I think, so enlightening and engaging for many people who read it. But, but yeah, so one of the ideas is that this sort of social comparison, like, well, if this person is doing, you know, the bare minimum, then you know, I'm good to, I'm good to do what I'm doing. So, or why should I go over and above when, when everyone around me is not? Sometimes this can happen in like a family unit where one person is really gung-ho about climate change or sustainability, but then they sort of get worn down by the inactivity or the anti-attitude by the, you know, family members or roommates and so on. Same with organizations and, you know, coworkers who want to do the right thing and then, you know, uh, others who don't comply. And so things get a little bit you know, less so, I guess, over time. But yeah, so social comparison can be good. Sometimes if there is sort of the sense of active competition where you know another person is trying to do their best and you can see if you can one-up them. But it depends on personality too. And that's one other good thing about environmental psych is that maybe because it's so young, we've been able to sort of piggyback onto other fields that exist in psychology. And personality theory is, is sort of a, a longstanding one where we can 
take some of the ideas we have about why people do things the way they do and why they don't and relate them to things like extroversion and introversion and openness to experience and neuroticism and agreeableness and so on and other aspects of personality where we find that people will generally behave in a way that you know aligns with their personality so for example like i'm not I'm not the most extroverted person. And so I find that I, you know, if there was a protest or a rally or something, even though I might have the right attitude and I might believe in that cause fully, I might not behave in that way. I might write a letter, you know, or write a write an article and submit it to a magazine or a journal or do something more introverted. And I think often when we think about getting people to behave, it's it's just as important to maybe align those options with the different types of personalities and people that we've got to make sure that they're behaviors can be um, just as impactful, but but definitely something that they feel comfortable doing. Right. And I mean, you mentioned that after a while, right, let's say somebody else in your house or your office isn't displaying the same level of, you know, <laughs> interest in environmental behaviors that you are. And over time, that can wear you down. W would you call that burnout? Is that what that is? And I'm wondering if it's the same thing with people who initially were really into complying with public health measures when COVID hit, but over time start to go, oh, no one else is wearing a mask. Why should I? Even if you still believe you should, you might stop doing it anyway because other people are just not doing it anymore, right? Yeah, I agree. I think there's this element of learned helplessness where, you know, you might feel like, well, you know, I, I, I tried and I, I really care, but it's not really making a difference, especially if you see your peers not uh, uh, following through with something that you care about a lot. And then you feel like nothing, nothing matters. Nothing that you do has any efficacy or you don't have any eff efficacy to change things. And that's, it's good that you brought that up because that's one of the problems that we see it's sort of a tipping point between things like, you know, when people feel eco-anxious, eco-anxiety is becoming quite prevalent and tipping that over into, you know, you know, severe depression about the environment and, and having almost, you know, a, a big, a big um, sadness or uh, a feeling of despair and loss about the opportunities that we had to get the environment back to the way it could be for us to be all right, or for, you know, for future generations. And so this idea of learned helplessness is kind of, you don't want to get there. You want to feel, I mean, feeling anxious and worrying about the environment can, can be productive in many ways. It can get you to act and be the type of person to, you know, to be a bit more of an activist to get things to change if the enthusiasm is high. But once, once learned helplessness becomes part of the equation, it might be that people become so anxious about the problem that, that they stop doing the behaviors that really would help and also feel maybe more generally helpless and, and alone and upset about the prospect of the climate in general. Right, kind of the like, am I the only one who cares about this still kind of thing, right? Is that, okay. I, I'm wondering if there's a fine line there. I mean, is that something, if that's something that you're experiencing, that you feel super anxious about the climate and the future of all humanity and so on, is there something that might be happening that makes that would be a warning sign like you're crossing into an area where eco anxiety could be a real problem maybe you should step back or see some somebody and get some help yeah i mean i i mean i used to talk to a lot of clinicians about this i haven't talked to them in a few months but i i feel like they they have seen an uptick in this where 
people, yeah, start to sort of understand that their worrying, yeah, no longer sort of makes the difference that they want it to. And they, they talk to their friends and their friends aren't sort of worrying to the extent that they are. And they, you know, a lot of times, at least in my experience, people who I've sort of seen tip over into this, not, not quite despair, but to the point where they're no longer behaving in a way that's sort of proactive, I suppose, about the environment is that they've started small and they thought that they, you know, by doing small changes in their behaviors, that they would gain confidence and sort of gain encouragement by their friends and their family and in themselves to sort of do larger and larger, more impactful changes like, you know, oh, if I pick up five pieces of garbage from the beach, then, you know, the next day or the next week, I'll pick up 10. And you realize, though, that, you know, the amount of garbage is the same and it doesn't go down and you you would end up feeling so responsible for picking up so much more and so much more to meet your feelings of responsibility or your goals that you've set for yourself that you just all of a sudden tip into, well, I'm not going to do it at all. And then, you know, things get worse emotionally for that person. Or if you, you know, you feel like you start, you know, riding your bike in the summer and I'm doing so well. And then, you know, the cold weather hits or the snow hits and you go, well, I'm not going to do it at all. And then it just stops. Right. And then at that point, people can become a little bit more upset maybe than if they were just to be consistent. And so sometimes doing a little bit, but consistently sometimes be maybe better advice than to say, start small and get bigger. But yeah. yeah. And I wonder if, if some of that despair comes from disinformation and conspiracies and that sort of thing, right? Every now and then you talk to a friend who surprises you by telling you that, you know, oh, the planet just warms in cycles and it's just like it was in the 1800s and climate change is a hoax because David Suzuki has money or something, right? There's always something nonsense about it, but a lot of people believe this stuff. And I was thinking about this just and this will be published a little bit later, so I'll let people know that we're having this conversation just a couple of days or the, the day after uh, the U.S. midterm elections. And I saw a tweet thread from a woman who had been running for Senator Congress in Missouri. And she was talking about how she would go and knock on doors and talk to all of the constituents that she wanted to represent and say, I'm from the Democratic Party and before she could get that out, that she would hear about how her party eats babies and how, you know, well, we need to put Jesus in classrooms and we don't, right? And just something that you really can't fight against in that moment. You cannot explain to somebody that, well, no, that isn't happening, right? And you can't explain to somebody, well, crime's actually gone down in this area and not up because they hear it, it's reinforced all the time. And just the threads that she was writing, and she came out of it, you know, more committed to fight than ever. And I thought, I don't think I could do that. I think if I had gone and knocked on all those doors and every person who answered the door told me that, you know, I murdered babies and ate them and was running a satanic pedophile ring, that I don't think I could continue to go knocking on doors. I, I feel like I would just stop and say, politics isn't for me. This yeah. is over. You know what I mean? So I, I'm just wondering if that's part of it, right? This sort of concerted effort out there to minimize climate change and in many cases to invent theories as to why it's not real. Yeah, I think... I think a lot of discredence and distrust of, you know, of science has has really muddled the picture for a lot of people. And also just the fact that we're not really hardwired, like Dr. Gifford says in his in his dragons paper, like we're not really hardwired neurologically to be thinking about things that are going on, you know, in a in a 
a large climate scenario in other parts of the world for other people that don't affect us and, and our self-interests or risks or threats that will be, you know, taking effect in three generations time or one generation's time. We're not, we're, it's easier for us to understand what, uh, you know, what a proximal risk is or something that will happen next year or next month and things that really scare us and especially messaging that tells us that we have to stop our way of life and change our quality of life or our, li- you know, our livability or our habits. The messaging really needs to be showing us what we need to do in a positive way and not sort of be that nanny state-esque tone where, you know, we ought not do these things. Um, and this will, this is what the scary thing will happen when, if you, if you don't do it, people don't really respond very well to those types of messages. And so I think early on, you know, and I mean, there's a lot of environmental psych, decision-making science research that that's out there to say now how to message to get, to get better, uh, uh, more positive attitudes and compliance to occur. Um, and so Absolutely. I think, yeah, if we look at those things and sort of understand how to visualize things for people so that when, you know, if we see what a coastline will look like in a town in 10 years, if we do nothing versus if we do this much or this much or this much in terms of whatever it is they're trying to adapt to and, and not scare people to death, but also really help them uh, form a sense of place and some place attachment and some civic fortitude together as a community to work together, then then I think we'll have better results. And then maybe people will maybe trust the science a bit better if the evidence is, is given to them in particular ways that are, that you know, that's accessible and, and non-disputable. And I think, um, I think that it is, it's just a matter of communication. Definitely. But attachment to a place, I like it. That's brought us full circle as I have just under four minutes left and we haven't uh, actually spoken about the reason that I I asked you to to be on this podcast. So let's close this out with Climate Action and Global Psychology. This is a book that you and our CEO, Dr. Karen Cohen, collaborated on a chapter and I'm hoping you can just give me a, a brief overview of what that chapter is about and your contribution to this book. Karen and I wrote sort of dually, Karen wrote about some of the the contributions that CPA had made at a meeting, I believe in 2020, where a lot of um, psychological associations got together and talked about climate change and the role of psychology in addressing the problem of climate change. And what a wonderful and yet you know, compelling and challenging issue that was to do, but how how nice it was to reflect on all of the things that CPA has done already. And one of those things was the section that I chair, the environmental psych section. Some of us got together and wrote as a sort of a task force, wrote a position paper for CPA for the board to approve, which they did to take to governments to say what some of the literature has said already about what psychology can do in the face of climate change and give some recommendations about how to spend money <laughs> and yeah. fund, some, you know, fund some of the research. And one of those recommendations and based on the literature that's becoming, you know, more and more um, deep in our, in our body of literature and all of the lines of inquiry that we've got going on is the impact of nature and why it's so important to encourage a sense of place for people to sort of build a relationship back with a landscape or a place, whether that's a community or a coffee shop or a beach or a mountain or a park, you know, the ability to access those places frequently and build a bond emotionally, psychologically with a place is part of that gap between getting people to care and then getting them to behave based on that caring. And if there is a gap between attitude, eco-conscious attitude and eco, you know, pro-environmental behavior, then one of the ways to you know, bridge that gap is to get people to have an emotion about what they're trying to steward and what they hope to save. And so place attachment is, it was always, I think, popular because it's so relatable and experiential and emotional. 
and every almost everybody feels some sense of place attachments somewhere but it is becoming more and more of an important variable to study with respect to getting people to act and behave in a way that can help the environment in the long term thanks to dr lindsay mccunn for taking the time during a busy reading week to talk to us today on mindful and thanks to you for tuning in streaming or downloading today's episode Remember, Mindful can be found wherever you get your podcasts, and the next episode is in two weeks' time. Today's episode was written, hosted, and recorded by me, Eric Bullman. It was produced and edited by Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.